I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be talking with one of the world's most controversial filmmakers, Uwe Boll. Many have called him the world's worst director alive. Others, such as admittedly myself, believe he's been misunderstood and that his films deserve reevaluation. Boll first came to prominence in the United States due to his cinematic adaptations of video games like House of the Dead, Blood Rain, Dungeon Siege, Alone in the Dark, Far Cry, and Postal. Said movies were harshly criticized by gamers and critics alike, although Postal has gained something of a cult reputation over the years. Less discussed are Bull's non-video game movies, which often tackle issues of social import. These include such films as the Columbine school shooting-inspired Heart of America, Assault on Wall Street, a film made in reaction to the 2008 financial crisis, and Wall Street Corruption. The brutal, based-on-a-true-story prison drama, Stoic. Attack on Darfur, which examines the genocide in Sudan. The Holocaust docudrama, Auschwitz. And, perhaps most notably, the Rampage Trilogy. A series that details the evolution of an alienated teenager, Bill Williamson, into a political terrorist. Bull retired from directing in 2016 after the release of Rampage President Down, a film, I hasten to add, 
the eerily presages the January 6th riots in Washington, D.C. During his retirement, Bull continued to help produce films, as well as starting a well-regarded Vancouver-based restaurant known as Bauhaus. Bull, however, couldn't kick the filmmaking bug, and in 2022, he returned to the director's chair with the chilling docudrama Hanau, Winter in Germany, a film depicting the disturbed, radicalized mind of Tobias R., the world's first QAnon-inspired mass shooter in the lead-up to his rampage on February 19th, 2020. The conversation to follow doesn't focus as much on Bull's infamous video game-based films, or for that matter, the notorious boxing matches he had with his critics, but rather the non-video game-based films previously mentioned with some diversions into politics, social issues, and Bull's cinematic influences. Hell, we even end up talking about the radical left-wing revolutionary group, the Red Army Faction, which operated in Germany when Bull was growing up. In fact, I think this is probably the only conversation you'll ever hear in which Bull is asked about the RAF. Needless to say, this is a fascinating discussion, running a little less than 1 hour and 40 minutes in length, and I hope it'll give a different perspective on Uwe Boll and his films. With all that in mind, let's get right to it with Uwe Boll. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very excited to be speaking with. Uh, he's a filmmaker behind such films as Heart of America, Stoic, the Rampage Trilogy, and most recently, the movie Hanau, Winter in Germany. Uh, the director is Uwe Boll, and yes, I did uh, not talk about the video game movies that a lot of people know him for because... My God, how many times do we have to rehash that? But Uwe Boll, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I have a little of the flu, uh, but uh, everybody has the flu here right now where I am. So it's all good. So Uwe, I kind of, I, I don't want to spend too much time on uh, the video game movies that people may know you for, uh, like House of the Dead or Blood Rain. I really wanted to talk about some of your movies before and after that phase of your career. And I specifically wanted to delve into uh, how you became involved in films to begin with, uh, because your early films are very interesting to me. Uh, movies like German Fried Movie and Amokloff. Uh, could you talk about how your early career in uh, German cinema began? Yeah, I was a big film fan in general. And in school, I met uh, Frank Lustig who also wanted to make films. So we joined forces. I think it's always good to find early on somebody who has the same vision or wants to do the same thing. So we bought a super eight millimeter camera, short movies, and then we uh, didn't get into film school both. Uh, there were only two film schools in Germany at that time. And then we made the decision like, look, uh, 
there are two options. We turn into journalists, whatever, or we actually make a film. And that was German frat movie. Uh, I was a big fan of Kentucky frat movie. And I felt that this humor <clears throat> will translate well also for German humor, but also you can shoot one scene and it's not connected to another scene. So we, we spread the shoot over seven months and basically did everything on our own, prepped the next shoot a week later. And <clears throat> the movie came in the movie theaters in Germany. What was a big surprise for uh, basically a humor trash film like this. And uh, then we got money for another film uh, from the UFA, a big German studio, basically. Uh, and this basically was the beginning. And uh, Ran Amok was when Frank and I, in a way, split up. And he left the company. So we founded a company, Bolu Film, still existing for Ball and Lustig. And the last money I had, I shot the Amoklauf uh, film, what was very uh, dark and uh, strange in a way, because I felt, oh, may maybe my career is already over. Like, I, that was it. But then lucky, I was lucky and, and uh, could do more films and uh, even go to the US in uh, the year 2000. So I'm curious, when it comes to your influences, uh, were you influenced at all by other German filmmakers like the German New Wave? Or were you more influenced by um, Hollywood movies? Like wh what were your primary influences when it came to cinema? That was uh, Hollywood. It, uh, there was a movie theater and I watched all the big, uh, like Spartacus, Ben Hur, Kuvaris, this kind of films were running there, but also big Western. So I saw like... Uh, um, the searchers on the big screen and that had a big impact uh on me so later on <clears throat> when when you turn into an adult in a way i of course watched uh chabrol godard like a lot of like european filmmakers pasolini and uh of course uh there were masterpieces in europe too but i was still more a genre fan so I still, uh, uh, you know, the French connection or whatever was still like I enjoyed the film 10 times more as a, as a Godard film or something. But I was aware that there are other forms of film, other genres, uh, in a way, the art house film, the, uh, the, the drama. Uh, and I've, I followed basically all that directors, Carlos Saura. Uh, you know, in Germany, I was uh, a fan of Werner Herzog, uh, based on Fitzcarraldo, based on this kind of early on films he did, uh, because he was a real adventurer. And um, a lot of the German films, like from Fassbinder and so, I never got like really into it. I, I watched it and felt like, what's the point? I mean, uh, uh, you know, they were not so for me influential as maybe for other uh, filmmakers. <clears throat> and uh, but Herzog was from the beginning on like different, you know, the films he did, nobody else did, even in America, nobody else did. And I, I was fascin fascinated by, uh, by this, you know, but from the US directors. So when I was a young adult, basically, uh, Scorsese, Oliver Stone, uh, <clears throat> they really like, I followed their, their career. Uh, and there was a time where I was around 16, where that horror, wave came with with halloween mother day man eater all that stuff i watched too because uh it was creepy you know so and i, I faked my school id to get in uh in the in the in this kind of films 
And it was at that point, it was like, you could brag with it. You could be in school and saying, look, I watched it. I got in, you're not, right? So stuff like this. And uh, yeah, so it it was really like a, a, a long time where uh, I went sometimes at two o'clock in the afternoon in the movie theater and it was like a center and I never left. I just, I paid only one ticket and then went from theater to theater and I had my sandwiches with me and uh, stayed there till 10 p.m. and watched like three, four films uh, in a row. So it's interesting. Uh, you end up coming to the U.S. and making uh, movies like Sanctimony, Blackwoods. And the one that I particularly was touched by was uh, Heart of America, which uh, sort of is your movie dealing with the phenomenon of school shootings. And, uh, you know, one of the reoccurring themes in a lot of your movies is dealing with, let me see if I can pull up this article that mentions it. Uh, there's an article in the New Inquiry uh, called Uwe Bull's Weaponized Cinema uh, that talks about uh, your films and how they often deal with individualized responses to structural violence. Uh, the article mentions Heart of America, Assault on Wall Street, and the Rampage films in this regard. I'm I'm really curious, what sort of attracts you to making these movies about people that run amok for, you know, various different reasons? Yeah, I... Uh... I don't know, to be honest. Like, I, I'm, I don't think I'm a guy who would run amok, but uh, I can understand people who do it. And uh, I went over my film career in a, in a very, let's say, different way in it. In, in Amoklau from Germany, uh, it was basically, uh, I never questioned the perpetrator. We are on him. Basically, there's no cops or whatever, and you just follow him into... Uh, the light in a way he survives after he kills a group of students uh, very artificial and in Heart of America it was more a serious drama about the senseless killing of in schools like what you had with Littleton at that time <clears throat> and uh, there I really wanted to go into the psychologically uh, situation why people run amok and similar to my last film Hanau in Germany where I did the same uh, like in Heart of America, it was a QAnon guy, basically, who was completely out of it, who killed nine migrants by, by Frankfurt. And um, I felt like I was interested, and I'm still interested to find out why people do that, why they snap, why that X factor comes in at one point. Because it's not enough to say somebody took pills or somebody had a weapon. It's not enough like millions of people have weapons, but they don't run amok. So there is something else what finally make make them go over the edge or pull the trigger. And uh, that that is what I'm fascinated of, you know. But then I did also films like Assault on Wall Street, where I think it was justified, you know, where, where you feel like uh, he loses his wife, his house, his job, his existence existence because the bankers screwed him over so he goes and kills the bankers and uh that movie was was done or, or that reasoning why i'm on his side basically doing it is if you really don't have to lose anything anymore like then the question for him would be why not i mean what's the point not to run amok you know they destroyed you they are rich they stayed rich you are ruined so uh so I had a, that was basically my answer to the 2008 financial meltdown, uh, where 6,000 Americans uh, in the aftermath uh, 
killed themselves. Like they lost everything and they did suicide, but nobody went to Goldman Sachs and run Amok. And you, when you see the, the, the headlines in the US press every day, you think, why not? I mean, every day people running Amok, <laughs> you know, like randomly total bullshit Amok runs without any reason. And there, a lot of people had a reason to do it, but they did. That is strange, but that shows also like that, that dark side X factor, what makes people snap, uh, is not directly connected to the individual fate that people have. You know, I, I just wanted to say real quick in regards to Assault on Wall Street, I actually think that's a very subversive movie in its own way, uh, because so many revenge films sort of take the tact of, say, uh, you know, the Death Wish movies with Charles Bronson, where, oh, you know, uh, this big manly man is going to take out the, uh, the low-life street thugs. You know, but we haven't seen many uh, revenge movies where they go after white-collar criminals instead. True. And I, I feel like that, that was kind of uh, necessary at that point, because when a Richard Fulk, for example, went away with $400 million after tanking $80 billion what the taxpayers need to uh, refund, um, it's ridiculous. And it's a total, what we saw there was a total injustice. And it shows really like uh, uh, that the system is is rigged, but not like how Donald Trump wants to be rigged. So like rigged against the poor people, rigged against the people, they have nothing and they don't have the big attorneys and they don't have this kind of uh, massive money to uh, to try to, to, to get their money back if they get screwed over. So... Um, you know, and for me, it was very important that the wife in Sona was had killed herself because they couldn't pay the medical bills anymore. And uh, without this, that guy would never run that more. It's you a know, fascinating but- film, too, because not not to interrupt you, but uh, you really do take your time to develop uh, the struggle of the characters in it. Uh, really, you know, the, the whole uh, assault on Wall Street doesn't happen until maybe the the last 15 minutes, the, the sort of dread that you feel seeing this man's life destroyed is really built up until uh, the last part of the film. It's really well-constructed in my view in that sense. Yeah, I wanted, I didn't want it to uh, like repeat like a rampage or something where you have basically a massacre for like 80 minutes out of 90. And uh, uh, Solomon Wall Street is a drama and uh I wanted to to bring him to that cliff and to basically uh, make him do what what the people deserve. I like it also that John Hurt, who plays the big banker, right, that he is still staying in the driver's seat, even if he is alone with him in the room and he has the gun. So there's kind of like he still thinks he's superior. And uh, he doesn't see any mistakes. He thinks only the, the people are stupid, that they fell in the trap and invested all, put all the money in something. And I think that is the real, I wanted to show the real mentality of this cutthroat industry, that the bankers, it's all about their, uh, like basically bonuses they're getting and they sell any crap. And uh, I just watched also the doku about, uh, now, uh, who was the biggest scammer on Wall Street uh, who died now in jail. Um, oh, Madoff. Madoff, right? And you think when you see the, 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 the whole 
I mean, tons of people had to know that he was basically a Ponzi scheme, that they, they were like everybody who worked for him when they later say, no, uh, I had no clue, but they had a whole like floor for the fake bookkeeping they had to do. And I mean, uh, that is, it's just idiotic that it was only him, but the others stayed on because of greed. And the richest guys always got the money back from him because everybody who was like able to sue him, he paid off from the money he collected from other people, you know, and who got screwed over in the end. Everybody was with smaller investments, you know? Yeah. So I'm curious, uh, one of the things I always hear when people talk about uh, Assault on Wall Street or the Rampage sequels, the sort of naysayers or the critics will say, oh, well, you know, this is a good movie, but the the dialogue is too political. It's too in your face. Uh, and I've never really understood that because I think there's some, you know, very overtly political dialogue in movies that are considered classics, like uh, the movie Network, for instance. Uh, what do you say to the critics that that will say, oh, Uwe's uh, films have gotten better but they're still too in your face with uh, Uwe's politics because I think it's an unfair criticism, but I want you to respond to it. I think there are two things to it, right? So the one is I really, uh, uh, because of the video game-based movies and the negative backlash I got, I had a very hard time to make people change their opinion. No reviewer uh, who said Uwe Ball is the worst director ever wants to... You know, the maximum I got out of them was that they say, oh, that is a decent movie. That's actually not so bad. But of course, it's bad because it's from Uber Ball. So they could jump over the shadow and say, a guy who made a movie I totally hated made now a film I think it's very important and very good. So they couldn't do it. Like, it's it's more in, in their ballpark, like the psychological problem they had with, with me. And, um, you know, and on the other hand... Um, I like, I, look, I study films, I watch films all the time, right? So, and for me, this kind of like language or this things, what I can do best, not a lot of people do this. This kind of straight in your face, like say it how it is and don't dig around. Like, like you know, like this kind of, a lot of directors, they are like this kind of um, in symbolism and, you know, I portrayed the racism of something and you watch the film, you think, where, but where was that? So, and, and in my films, you always know where you are when you watch them. So, because they're like just telling the story, how the story unfolds. And I think Bill Williamson, the Rampage uh, lead, um, he turned from a greedy, almost older teenager bank robber mass murderer in the later films into a, a real terrorist, like a political terrorist, you know, like a Una Bomber kind of guy, where where he had the feeling uh, the society is so fucked up, the best is we all die. So, uh, and especially the political statements from him in part two, I think are very important. You know, that he gives it to everybody, to Obama, because he killed so many people with drone flights. So he's he is not on any side. And I think also that is also what I hate in a lot of films. Uh, they try to be political correct, and they normally, like, are very careful in, in doing anything what could harm people or where people, like, oh, you cannot do it this way. 
And I disagree. I think film is a very good uh, uh, tool to basically show things unfiltered. You cannot show, show on the news or in a documentary because there you have a real thing. But in a fiction film, you can be even clearer. You know, I, I think Apocalypse Now or The Deer Hunter portray the Vietnam War better as any documentary ever shot about them because they get the essence of a totally senseless war or just ruined the whole generation of, of, of people on both sides. And uh, that is uh, what, I, what I love in feature films, that you have that freedom uh, to do that. I was going to say, going back to Heart of America for a second here, I know that Ron Howard uh, was actually a big fan of the film. And I, I really enjoyed it when I watched it recently as well. And it's funny you mentioned how uh, some directors can get up, caught up with being uh, you know, deliberately vague or not really answering the questions or really even having anything to say. And that's how I felt when watching uh, Gus Van Sant's Elephant. I was not a big fan of that movie. I felt like it was sort of just saying, oh, you know, we can't understand why this kind of violence happens. Whereas for me, Heart of America tries to really tackle the issue, not only of school shootings, but also really the, the dark side of uh, American suburbia. I mean, you're dealing with teen pregnancy in that. Uh, bullying, uh, the way teachers can mistreat students. So you really had something to say in that film. And I was wondering if you could just reflect a little bit uh, on Heart of America and how you feel about that film in hindsight. Yeah, I, uh, I think the good thing is exactly how you said that we had various people who had reasons to maybe run amok. So you, you, you as an audience, you don't know. And uh and then, of course, like it's very surprising in a way who in the end shoots everybody. So, uh, and but I felt the there was no real real reason for anybody to really kill other people. But that is in the mind of a teenager, things getting like so like narrowed down to there is no light at the end of the tunnel. I'm just doing that now because I cannot stand it anymore. I have to like. Uh, have my 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 air are going out, and um, I feel like when you think the bully, like Brandon Fletcher, who plays later in Rampage, I would guess he would kill everybody, but he's not. He gets killed, right? So, and uh, I think that that all comes together like a kind of a puzzle, and uh, and I agree with you, but I, my problem with that film was that elephant came shortly before heart of america and then everybody was on elephant and nobody cared at that point about heart of america what was a little uh, uh negative for the for the film you know and uh, i'm happy that i even had elizabeth moss in it you know who's now a big big star basically yeah yeah, it's, it's really interesting. You mentioned um, Brendan Fletcher. One of the aspects of Heart of America that I really liked is, you know, you have this character that's a bully, but you end up sort of feeling bad for him in a way because he even starts to question, you know, whether he should be bullying people just because his brother and his father were like that. And um, I think you have more complex characters in your movies than people give them credit for. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk about uh, the ways in which you write characters and also uh, the leeway you give to your actors in portraying those characters. Yeah, I normally have like, when I write something on my own, what I did with the dramas and the, the films, they're very political. I didn't uh, wrote the, the video game based films and I, I can basically not, not write anything just for entertainment. 
So if I write something, I want to write something where I have to say something about it. And um, what the key moment for me in Heart of America is when Will Sanders and his older brother from Brandon like uh, tells that he raped the basically uh, the slow Alice White played by Michaela Mann, uh, like the, the the little handicapped girl, and that uh, uh, turned Brandon around. But that was too late. He basically then later gets gets shot, and that is also a thing. What my message in it was is like sometimes you you want to change something but it's too late so you're responsible for your doing uh from the from the day one on and not like oh now i changed my opinion please forgive me uh for everything and that is what i did by the way also in tunnel rats in tunnel rats i had all the all the u.s actors i told them like when you come to south africa you tell me why you're in the vietnam war like you have to tell me i'm not telling you so are you drafted are you a total, uh, uh, like, uh, basically a military fan and you cannot wait to go and kill people? So, and uh, I think that works very well if you give the actor a little, like, I write it this way, that the actor has to fill out something. In Stoics, the same. You know, like, uh, I put them all four in a jail cell and they had to uh, sleep there. Like Sam Levinson, who's doing now Euphoria, for example, and Sean Sippers and and uh, Edward Forlong, they were very mad with me that I said you're not going in the hotel, so you sleep in the jail cell to understand why you could kill somebody in that cell. And it was really like after 24 hours, they were totally like started hating each other because they were so close together. And then the one was farting or whatever, and uh, uh, so it escalated. And I told them too. You decide who you kill. So I hired the four actors and and said, like, uh, you know, I don't know who would survive this. So uh, you find the victim. It's three against one. And then it was uh, Sean Sippers uh, who who got killed. But I think stuff like this helps the actor. A lot of the actors are used to just learn some lines and deliver it. What we did in all the video game-based films, and I think then always the acting was not there where it could be. And I think if you involve the actor in, in a process, and it works, of course, way better in a drama uh, because then they really can uh, go into it. It's, of course, you cannot in House of the Dead have like a character acting. It will never work, you know? So, uh, yeah, but when I write something, a lot of times I have a scene, I start with a scene. I have a scene in my head, like that scene I want to do. And um, the film I'm... I'm uh, shooting in New York, the uh, the first shift, like the, my next film, basically what I'm doing now after a longer time uh, not doing international film. I had three scenes written for five, six years. They had nothing to do with each other. I didn't know what to do with it. And now they're all in that one film uh, because I found the, the, the perfect vehicle uh, for to integrate all that scenes, basically, in one story. So, and I have a lot of this kind of things where I have a, a folder of something, I write something, and then it's ne never going anywhere. And then years later, I think about, no, that was a good thing, but I have to, how, what I'm doing with it. And sometimes you do nothing. Sometimes it ends up in, uh, in, a, in a thing like a Southern Wall Street.
It's funny that you mentioned Stoic because uh, it's a very disturbing film. And it's, it's uh, in a lot of ways, it's hard to watch just to see these three prisoners completely dehumanize another one of their cellmates. Uh, and I've seen people say, what's the point of uh, this kind of movie, just showing all this violence and this complete dehumanization? And I think if I'm reading the film correctly, I think you want people to be shocked and upset by it. I mean, it's meant to unsettle you and it's meant to ask, well, how does something like this happen? Uh, am I getting a, a correct reading of, of how you want people to react to the film? I think you do want them to be shaken by a film like Stoic. Yes, uh, especially by, by Stoic or by Auschwitz, where you, know, where you have this uh, kind of, um, that could be you. You know, like what I want is that the audience think I could be the perpetrator, but I could be also the victim. It really depends on like five minutes doing the wrong thing. And um, the, I mean, Stoic was a real story of a German uh, jail by Cologne where exactly that happens, what I, what I show in the film. And that was the, when I read that in a bigger newspaper article in Germany, that made me want to do uh, Stoic. Um because it shows so fast, as you said, the dehumanization of people happens all the time. And it happens on all in all directions. So it's um, if it's Myanmar or if it's in Sudan at Darfur, um, if it was under the Nazis, it was like uh, it's so easy in a way for people to disqualify other people as humans. And uh, in a way, it happens now in the Ukraine, too against the Russians, you know, my, my people don't want to hear it, but the Russians are also humans. And now they say we give, give all that weapons to the Ukraine so they can save lives. That is the official talk in, in Europe when they deliver weapons to them. To, no, they don't save life with weapons. They always kill other people with weapons. They defend themselves. And I'm not against giving the Ukraine weapons and I'm totally against Russia that they, that they went into the Ukraine. But to act like it's a good thing that now 150,000 Russians are dead and 80 or 90,000 Ukrainians is just like bullshit. You know, it's, it's, it's really like uh, it's murder and it's like insane that we do this. There's this kind of like, if I physically would have to be somewhere and run from house to house with a machine gun and hope I don't get shot and shoot other people now, like a thousand kilometers away from here where I'm living, you think like I, I could drive then 12 hours, I would be in the war. So I think it's insane and it has to get stopped. And we have to say, look, it's over with that bullshit. I would never die for a country. You know, I would die for, for me or my family if somebody attacks me or something, I have no choice. But I don't know if somebody says, well, you fight now against the Russians, I would say, fuck it, let them come here. And then they're getting bored and they go away. So, uh, you know, like, I mean, then you do like uh, a, a, a civil resistance because, for example, the Russians could never hold 45 million Ukrainians hostage forever. It didn't work in the past. They did that all the time, but it never worked. At one point, they you get exhausted and then you say, uh, what are we doing here? It, it doesn't bring any sense, you know, but I mean, it's a different subject matter, but I think uh, the dehumanization is a key point where you see uh, human humans in general have that in them. 
And a lot of people also have it in them. They just want to cancel people. They just want to, you know, the hate, the resentfulness is the first step to this kind of dehumanization. So uh, it's interesting because uh, with a movie like Stoic, uh, something I noticed was that you're sort of dealing with this issue of uh, how prisons are run. I mean, should someone who's in jail for vagrancy be in the same cell as someone with more serious offenses? You sort of tackle that in Stoic. Uh, in movies like Tunnel Rats and even Postal, uh, which is a really great comedy in my view, you're tackling the absurdities of war. And I think there's this sort of anti-war sentiment in a number of your films. Um, and then, as I said, with the sort of movies like Rampage and Assault on Wall Street, you're dealing with, uh, you know, why do people get driven uh, towards violence or what makes people snap? Uh, so one of the key things I've noticed in your films is that you you are passionate about uh, social issues, and there is a sort of political consciousness to your films. Uh, what was your sort of social or political awakening? Uh, did you ever have one, any specific moment where you said, uh, I care more about these issues? And also, I should mention, uh, you were very on point with Attack on Darfur, uh, another movie that dealt with a very serious issue. So how did you become uh, someone that wanted to talk about these issues in cinema? Yeah, I mean, I, I was political very early on and uh, followed up what, what, so when I grew up, it was the time where the NATO put the, the nuclear bombs into Germany because Germany was the front line to the East, to the Warsaw Pact, to the Russians. So we have here, like where I live in Mainz, only like 20 kilometers away from here is the biggest nuclear ram to shoot bombs to Russia. So, uh, and I felt at that point, uh, A, we shouldn't do it. We should try to that the, the nuclear bombs getting off the, off the table. And we see today what disaster we are. Like, you know, like we, that we are scared now that that Ukraine war turns into a third world war and we're all dead is real. You know, the Russians have 3,000 nuclear bombs that is triple what you need to destroy everything. So we don't even have to shoot our bombs back. Everybody will be dead. So, uh, you know, they will die too because of the nuclear fallout. So, and uh, I felt like uh, I don't want a war at all, but a normal war, like what they're doing in the Ukraine now, is at least something you can negotiate a peace in between. But in a nuclear war, it's all over. You basically can open your last bottle of wine and look out of the window, uh, and then within hours, it it will be uh, all over. So, and uh, since then, I follow up uh, what's going on on the political landscape on all as aspects, of course. And uh, I turned over the last 20 years, more and more away from this thinking left or right, you know, like communism, capitalism. And I'm very much uh, like total independent, like I'm an independent thinker and I'm not like uh, falling too much into propaganda. And I, I'm sure I have some uh, opinions based on studying some facts uh, where people say that is so right wing. And people will say that is so left wing, you know, but I'm always trying to 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 have an open mind for just facts. That's you know? that's interesting because I've always seen you. Uh, I've always perceived a lot of your films as having 
a more sort of left-wing slant in general, but that that was just my perspective watching them. Yeah, I mean, maybe from the humor, definitely in Postal, uh, to make jokes about everything. But it was also, I mean, the time was Bush and Bin Laden and so on was inviting satire uh, in, in a way because you cannot make things up. You know, like Saddam Hussein was like the, the mastermind behind 9-11 and then he had nothing to do with it. But of course, that comes out after the war and he's dead. And then the ISIS takes over the whole country and it's even worse as under Saddam Hussein. Stuff like this is, uh, I think we made so many political mistakes, you know, that it's just unbelievable. And, uh, but I'm also like, let's say a realist for example, when Germany went because of Fukushima off nuclear energy, I'm against it. I'm pro-nuclear energy because if we have a bigger problem, and that is the climate change and the carbon burning, so to think you can do all of this with solar panels and wind energy uh, and you, you switch everything off, nuclear plants, coal, gas, it will not work. It's like it's just like a total like what the what the Green Party here in Germany the, in the government what they have is a, an illusion. They have an illusion that everybody will drive an electric car, even if everybody said we will not have enough electricity to load all that electric cars, for example, right? And the electricity are not allowed to come from the nuclear plants. They have to come from wind and solar. And all experts says. We're, we're, it's impossible. We cannot do it. You know, we have 85 million people here and a, a lot of industry in Germany, like the, the chemical giant BASF needs more gas a year as Denmark. So one company in Germany uses more as a country. So that idea that we shut everything off, what they're doing right now, what, they, what they're saying, will end up in a total disaster. And there I'm way more conservative, right? But not because I'm conservative, it's more because I just listen to the people that actually know what the fuck they're talking about. And I try that in, in everything. And uh, of course, like the, the subject matters of Postal, I felt that was, that is a thing you can tell only with humor, with like black humor, like the, the absurdity of, of everything. And, uh, but in other things like, like Rampage or something, I think he puts the finger in the wound. I think the fascination on the Bill Williamson is that even if he's a murderer, he still can be right. You know, that he still can be like uh, dead on with the how he analyzed the, the, the population. And that is very uncomfortable uh, for a lot of people. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting with the movie Rampage. I feel that that character, and Brendan Fletcher did a great job uh, in that role. And I'm so glad you've had a working relationship with him over the years uh, because he's a very underrated actor. Uh, with regards to Rampage, uh, what led to your making Rampage? Was was it meant to sort of um, play off what you did with a Mukloth? And, and how did Rampage come together? No, Rampage, I wrote a treatment and I uh, wanted to do the perfect crime. You know, like this kind of like... Uh, where the people really don't know, they will just watch it live unfolding. And that he did all the stuff to basically rob the bank is totally absurd. But that is also why it would work. You know, basically, if you kill a whole town, nobody gives a shit that the bank was robbed also. And he printed the fake 
paper uh, uh, notes to show he's burning the money. He gives a shit about the money, but in reality, he stole the money and exchanged it. It's a, it's a super sinister, but uh, but it has a strong logic to it, and and I think that is. Uh, um, that functions very good. And he throws his own best friend under the bus and kills him. And he's then the perpetrator. And he sits on the couch with his parents and is very sad about it. And uh, it's um, it's very cynical. But I felt that is the world we're living in. You know, we're living in a nonstop uh, where what he says, for example, in part one already is because of the overpopulation, right? So... Uh, when you hear to Elon Musk now or whatever, he will say, we need more people. The, the, our generation gets older and older. We need more younger people who work and pay taxes, whatever. But during that time period, the, the Earth's population almost doubled in the last like 20 to 25 years. And, and at the same time, everybody says the global warming escalates. We don't have enough air. We don't have enough food. We don't have enough like nature anymore, you know? And how can you then say the solution is to double the earth's population? It's the opposite. You know, when, when the opposite is we have to live with less and we also overall need to have less people. You cannot have China going from 1.2 billion, was already insane, uh, to 3 billion people and think they can eat something. There will be nothing to eat. It's like it, it's like a, just a logic behind it. And that is, I think, what, what Bill Williamson comes across, like he says things nobody really wants to hear. They only want to hear their stories. And uh, they they don't just want like an like the ice cold analysis analyst situation from from the facts. So and I feel like uh, we are on the wrong trip. I feel like overall, I don't have a good feeling about the outcome of our civilization. Let's say it this way. I think that the personal, uh, egoistic, uh, selfish behavior of the individual will win. You know, and uh, and it's uh, in a way, it's very unsettling that that visionaries like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk think we need to go to Mars, right? So it's, I, I mean, that is one of the, the, the I think that one of the most things I despite the most is like just giving it up now where you could still turn it around, right? I think live on, uh, living on Earth could be still good and could be turned around if we all have some discipline and if, if we all agree to that every single country on Earth has to fulfill uh, requirements. You know, it uh, and not like one country has only wind energy, but the others have still coal mining going on. That is that will not work because then it's also senseless to have wind energy only in Germany or whatever. It brings nothing. So on on the planet uh, scale. So and that is what what I I feel like uh, we see that also in the political landscape now. You know, like like when I did postal, a, a person like Trump was never seen before, like it was never there. You know, it was like now in retrospective, a George Bush Jr. looks like a super sophisticated person. Right, right. That, well, that, that's another aspect of your films that yeah. are interesting, especially uh, the third Rampage movie, uh, President Down. It, I mean, that's in 2016. 
you know, four years later, we have the, the you know, the January 6th insurrection. Uh, it's almost like you called it in some ways. No, it's really like the end of the Rampage 3, you know, is this kind of like mayhem on the streets, the, the streets, the mob is ruling. And uh, you have like this armed brigades patrolling through the streets, but it's not the police anymore. And, and then the insurrection on January 6th was almost this you know so it's it's really like uh what is if at january 6 parts of the police the national guard would join the mob you know what what i i you know like there's the thing or if that people would have weapons that there were like five six seven thousand people or whatever right so if they would have machine guns i'm sure like nancy pelosi would be dead now so uh and that was really close to a real violent, like, coup in the United States of America. And that was unseen, like, unthinkable uh, before, you know? And that the, the person who who initialized, initialized that is maybe running again shows also how, uh, let's say, helpless uh, the government reacted to it. You know, I mean, everybody else who robs a gas station, gets like eight years prison, you know? And there we have a president who say, we go to the Capitol. And and then uh, he still never went to jail for it. They did like one bullshit inquisition after the other, and they interviewed a thousand people. But I mean, it was, that is an obvious crime. You know, you don't have to interview anybody after this. You should arrest the Trump. So, and, and that is the thing what makes me upset. It's like this kind of, I think also that democracy a lot of times is also bureaucracy and then things don't get done at all. You know, we don't, we don't want a military leader like Putin who's doing like total crazy shit, you know? And uh, of course we want to stay democratic, but in a democracy, a lot of stuff doesn't get done ever. And then things going completely down the drain and nobody stops it. And that is also a huge problem. What that we have in Germany, the same thing, and in Canada, the same thing, like in US, that stuff stays unsolved, and you have the problem: the politics are only in for their own position. They just want to defend their governor job, their their job in the Senate, whatever, but they're not actually uh, trying to turn it around. It's interesting because uh, with the first Rampage movie. I think what you're talking about right now really gets at the heart of what you do in that movie because you have Bill Williamson basically immersed in this media that's saying, you know, everything in the world is going wrong. You hear it on the radio. You hear it on the TV. His best friend has a YouTube channel saying, oh, we need to stop being consumerist and we need to get together. But he himself even doesn't really try to change anything. And it's almost like Bill Williamson is immersed in this world where everyone's saying there's a problem, but no one has a solution. And he sort of decides, well, my solution is that I'm going to violently act out. I'll depopulate uh, the world. And it, it's interesting to me because I've seen some people say, is Uwe condoning uh, what Bill does, especially in that first movie? And I don't get that impression at all. And I also think the way you treat violence in that movie is uh, very jarring when compared to, uh, say, House of the Dead or Blood Rain, because the violence in Rampage is... I would say quite realistic and quite upsetting. And I was wondering, is is that uh was was that intentional on your part to show violence and rampage as not being like a video game? Totally. It's uh 
like bone dry. And you think like when he goes to the beauty salon and like shredders 20 girls, uh, you know, it's like uh, so disturbing that you think, how can he do this? You know, like, like what, what's wrong with that guy? And I think that we kept that. We, but of course, like, of course, you, you cannot watch Rampage without liking Bill Williams at the same time. And I think that was Brandon Fletcher who basically pulled it off in a way that I know a lot of people, they said when he died in part three in the end, they were so sad. Like they were, I got like tons of texts and stuff like, ah, Bill Williams cannot die. Uh, uh, it's totally absurd. But of course, a good villain is uh, people love people like this, right? So, and, and but not because of his violent acts. I think it, it's more because over time you, uh, you just want that he gets away with it. I, I was going to say, that's interesting because I, I didn't like Bill Williamson as much in the first movie, but he sort of grew on me in the sequels, especially, you know, when he's talking about, you know, gun control. He's like, the only reason I have these guns is because we have no gun control. And then he starts talking about Julian Assange. and He really becomes a very political figure in those sequels. Yes. And for example, with Assange and Snowden, right? I'm a, a, a big advocate for them and i had, had a lot of uh, uh open talks with people they said they did crimes whatever right but if the crime is way less as the result of the crime what the crime did like yeah you have whatever unfiltered material and you release it to the public and i think what what vicky leaks did uh was so important you know, like to show total bullshit is going on and uh, the public feed, like the CNN information on a lot of things are just plainly wrong. Same with the NSA, that they spy on everybody and they basically can listen to us here right now. That's no problem for them. So uh, that, that Snowden did that and that these people are still not pardoned. You know, every asshole gets got pardoned from Trump and but also Obama could pardon him, you know. So and and I think it's ridiculous, like especially Assange, he's in jail forever now. He was first in that embassy forever, now he's in jail forever. He's maybe dying in jail without ever getting a trial. And uh any trial he would get, uh, he should be free already now on probation or whatever, you know. I mean, what what is he's not a terrorist, he just gave information to the public who he got from soldiers, from other people like whistleblowers. So Chelsea when, Manning and people like that, yeah. I mean, that is the thing that, you know, like who, uh, why is Biden not doing it? You know, like what, what is wrong with that people? Like without them, a lot of crimes would never got detected. And and that that is values for me way more as, yeah, they released uh, like, uh, informations that were top secret. But look, now we know that Trump, Pence, Biden, they all have top secret shit at home in the garage, in the country house, in the golf wagon. They have the shit everywhere. And we're, then and they're not getting prosecuted for it. They're only talking about that, right? So, but Assange is rotting in jail. And that's sort of Bill Williamson's point in, in those Rampage sequels. Uh, you know, it's interesting to me. I just had a few more things I wanted to cover here if we could. You know, you mentioned earlier the documentary Auschwitz, 
And I remember when the trailer for that came out, people were screaming, oh, look at this. Uwe Boll's doing an Auschwitz movie. He plays one of the guards at Auschwitz in it. Uh, this is so exploitative. Uh, when I watched it, though, it was interesting. I think you were trying to really treat this issue seriously. Uh, and, you know, people may attack the film because uh, for people that haven't seen it, there's, you know, it, it depicts the camps and what happened there, including these prisoners being shuffled into the, the gas chambers um, and stripped of their clothing. And people will say, oh, well, why did you have to have nudity in it? Uh, well, this is what happened. They They did strip these people of their basic dignity. And I was wondering if you could uh, address that, that issue that people have where they'll say, oh, Uwe's films are just trying to be exploitive and sensational. How do you respond to people that uh, just write off your films that way? I mean, Auschwitz, I, I also had the idea to do basically that movie 20 years before I did it. And when they all say, oh, you did it, piggybacked it on Blood Rain 3, whatever, because it plays in the Second World War. And it's 100% true because nobody gave me any money for it. So I felt if I have the setup with like a prison camp and I have all the uniforms and the train and all that stuff because of the Blood Rain film, when I'm done with Blood Rain, I want to shoot that Auschwitz film and just put it on the budget of Blood Rain. And uh, not a lot of people like that idea, but I said, no, I want to do it. It's my chance now to do it because there are a lot of Auschwitz films. Uh, not Auschwitz films, but the Holocaust films. And they all tell special stories of heroes and survivors and, and so on. And But Auschwitz was a death camp. Like half of the people died the same day they arrived. And it, it's really interesting not to interrupt you, but uh, I think Stanley Kubrick was asked once um, why he never made a movie about the Holocaust uh, like Spielberg did. And I think Kubrick responded with, you know, no, Steven Spielberg made a movie about people that survive uh, the Holocaust. Um, you know, and that's true. Your film is very different in that way in that it's really dealing with the Holocaust itself, not, you know, the issue of survivors and, and triumphing over the tragedy of it. It's really supposed to just be a brute depiction of what happened and making people remember that. Yeah, look, and it was in the Yad Vashem Museum shown in, in Israel a lot. I had in Israel a lot of like feedback that they are thankful for the film because they said that is what happened. Like they killed us, like and not like you don't even have the, the time to say goodbye with all the drama. You have to when you watch films like The Boy in the Strip Pajama or something, you think that was a community good or whatever, right? So, but it was that was not the case. They were completely dehumanized, as as you said. Like for them, they were not humans. Otherwise, we couldn't do it. So for them, it was just like making product out of them, like the gold teeth out, the hair to fill pillows. That is what what, what got made out of them. And it's uh, unseen, basically, in the, in the history, in this kind of developed uh, world. You know, because, I mean, in Africa, you have a lot of genocides, like Darfur or whatever, but we would always say, okay, there were kind of tribes, there were not like civilized, westernized uh, 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 countries, but Germany was, and they still went so far that the, 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 the craziness and racism overturned any kind of uh, moral or human behavior or what the what the church will say they just waved it all nobody gave a shit and they they uh killed six million people uh 
merciless. How do you respond to what what I mentioned earlier, where I've seen people say, well, why does this Auschwitz movie have to have nudity in it? Because I I think you you purposely had that in there. And it's not like some titillating kind of nudity. I mean, it's supposed to be a realistic depiction of that. That was part of what happened. Yes. The the reason why I played the SS guy was that my other guards basically were not able to get the people naked. So it was a situation where I filmed and there there came like 40, 50 people. They had to get undressed and get into the gas chamber and they didn't. So they went in with a T-shirt or whatever. And I, uh, of course, stopped every single time the take and said to the guards, the actors from the guards, like, no, no, you have to stop them and undress them. Like, I mean, you're not like uh, uh, nice to these people. You know, so and then I said, no, I play it now. So I put the the uniform on and uh, I made sure everybody got naked and I yelled with them and say, get the shoes off, get get the the, the jacket off, because I felt that these guys couldn't do it because they were overwhelmed by the situation. And uh, when you do like this kind of filming, what I did with Darfur, too, where we had original Darfurian refugees basically who were in massacres who saw people get killed in front of them uh i think that it's as a filmmaker it's very important to stay uh in a way cold like to you know because everybody gets so emotional like and before everybody was crying the actors the other actors the camera crew and i i uh and then i think it's it's important to to not forget why you do this you know you want to show 500,000 people in Sudan got hacked into pieces and we did absolutely nothing against it. And then after Rwanda, you know, like 10 years after Rwanda, when Rwanda, everybody said, we should stop the genocide. And then it happens in Sudan and nobody gives a shit. You know, and that is the thing what what is so, like why I did the, the, the thing is also like, uh, I think a lot of things are so clearly visible, but we just let them happen. Right. You're like forcing people to confront the reality, in other words, with the films you're making about these subjects. Yes. You know, and, and I, I remember I watched it. There was a screening in by Cologne with the German army it was a multiplex theater full with like soldiers. And uh, there was a general also. And he said, like, uh, if uh, you can save lives, he said that to the soldiers later after the film. He said, if you can save lives, there are no orders. You save lives, period. And because a lot of Blue Helmet soldiers did nothing. They did nothing also in Srebrenica and in Sudan there were two, but they were not doing anything. They were just like counting the deaths, basically. And he was very mad about it in retrospective. And he said, look, if you see something like this, a massacre, you have to interfere. Like you have to stop it, right? And, but uh, it, it's, it's, an easy talk, but the, the reality is I confronted him then. I said, look, Sudan is flat. You know, it's not like Afghanistan. Like I said, with a few Tomahawk helicopters, you could totally control the Sudan with like the Janjaveed. They were on horsebacks, right? They were traveling from town to town to kill everybody. We could, we could like finish them uh, as the NATO within three weeks with no more massacres. But we didn't, you know, and then you have the feeling sometimes maybe it's all on purpose, you know, that they're actually sitting there in the White House, in the EU and saying, nah, 
it's not worth it. There, there's no money to be made there. Yes. No. What, what has to done, right? Dirt. So it's like this kind of uh, where you feel like uh, it's really fucked up. And that is, of course, what I tried in Postal too, you know, where you have this kind of situation with the Bush calls Bin Laden and needs his help and stuff. And you, you feel like, in a way, it's closer to the reality as what was in the newspapers. Out of curiosity, and I'll start wrapping up, um, but I, I was just curious. Was the... want, it's no problem. If you What's want, that? If you want 10 more minutes or so, it's yeah. no problem. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I was going to say, and you know, maybe you don't have an answer to this, uh, but did the, I, I know that Germany, even after World War II, there was a lot of political turbulence uh, between West and East Germany. And also, I think when you were growing up, that was around the time things like uh, the political violence of the Red Army faction was happening. Um yeah. Did any of the events uh, that were happening around you in Germany when you were growing up affect your films? Not really. The, the okay. thing is, I'm from the West, right? So from Cologne, it's the North Rhine-Westphalia is the most populated area in Germany, the most industrial. And we had no connections to East, like to the East German. So when the wall came down, uh, I mean, it's always like the, the people I, like when I'm in discussion, like they, I gave a shit. Like it was not like, uh, the wall came down. I didn't know anybody in Eastern Germany. I never went to Eastern Germany. And I gave a shit, right? So I said, like, yeah, great. So, and now, and uh, because for a lot of people, was that, of course, a, like a historical moment of their life because they had relatives in Eastern, uh, in Eastern Germany. And the, the Red Army uh, uh, fraction, that was a lot during my time when I was 17, 18, 19. And that was a, uh, a talk for a lot of people. And we all had kind of sympathy with them. But they were so uh, violent. And when they killed Schleier, like they kidnapped the, the, the Schleier guy, and he put always messages out, you know, like they made him like, so they sent tapes to the, to the news, and it was in the news, and then they executed him. That was where I uh, lost any sympathy for them. And then because I, I felt always like you cannot kill innocent, not, not innocent, it was not innocent, right? So, but you cannot like uh, actually just execute people or kill people for whatever reason, you know, for whatever reason, I could never do that. I would told him like after 30 days in, in as a hostage, I would say, so now be a better guy, bye. I would, whatever, I would, you would, I would maybe put him in the trunk of a car, but not kill him. So that they did that, that divided me so far off from them uh, that it's just like, that is so cynical and uh, that uh, was was strange. But there was the end of the main guys, you remember with Mogadishu, where, so they, they had the main Red Army people in jail. Yeah, Ulrich Meinhof and uh, uh, Andreas Bader, yeah. yeah. And, and Gudrun Ensley. And they were in jail. And then you had the the other group kidnapping that Lufthansa passenger uh, flight. And they said, we will blow up the flight if you don't let them go. So, and uh, the GSK-9, like the German Navy SEALs basically stormed the airplane and shot them all and freed all that there was none, not one hostage touched. They were basically able to take the, 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 uh, the airplane back but then in the same night, they all three died in jail. And I think they got murdered. 
till today. It's uh, uh, they were in isolation. They couldn't uh, say, "Okay, tonight we hang ourselves, all of us." And I think that was a revenge from the state uh, to to show. Uh, to put a message out. So I still think, and that is, of course, a thing that was never, it, it was investigated, but not really investigated. And it, 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 it doesn't make any sense for me that uh, because the, the narrative was they were so disappointed that the, the Lufthansa machine get taken back that they killed each other or, or, they, or they killed themselves. And I, I just don't believe it. I think that was bullshit. And that made me also being always like the man in the middle, right? So I'm not pro the, the country or state, whatever, but I was, of course, not a terrorist. But uh, they made good points, too. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the things I think the Red Army faction talked about is, um, you know, just issues with with uh, people that were, like, not repentant about being Nazis that were still around at the time. And they had they had points they were making that were very real and things that were happening in Germany that they had a right to be angry about. Yes, because a lot of the German judges, a lot of people in politics, they were big uh, people from the Second World War, and they never got prosecuted. Everything got like put under the carpet. And uh, but they were also, for example, against the Vietnam War, against the Americans, and uh, so they got uh, KJB uh, um, like weapons and so on. There was a lot of smuggling going on. That is the reason they always they went to Eastern Germany to train. And then they got smuggled back into Western Germany and stuff like this, and uh, um, PLO camps uh, and so on. So it it, it was a, a turmoil time, you know. And uh, in a way, uh, now like the extension rebellion, whatever. I think there is a chance that they're getting violent too. I think. So, like that, go on. No, no. I I think that we. We see that in Germany, they're shutting down the traffic a lot, right? So they tape themselves to the to the ground and stuff like this. That is the beginning. But uh, I have the feeling they're getting so desperate to save the environment uh, that they're actually turning more and more uh, violent against the state. And there will be maybe another wave of terrorism uh, coming based on this. So with regards to your latest movie, Hanau, Winter in Germany, which I really, really recommend people see, and I'm, I'm glad that it marks your return to directing, uh, this movie deals with Tobias R., the German QAnon shooter. You have an excellent actor, uh, Steven Menekes, uh from Stoic in it. Uh, what led you to make that movie? Because uh, I, I've seen different reviews of it, and I watched it myself, and I thought it was a very important movie because... Really, you're taking us inside the mind and showing us the perspective of someone involved in the QAnon cult and the violence that comes out of that. Uh, why did you think it was important, though, to get inside the mind of this QAnon spree shooter? Yeah, because I think that is the most uh, dangerous movement, this kind of like, uh, you know, it's like not even like Proud Boys. It's like QAnon stuff. uh is so off, but it's so widespread now. Even in the Congress, are people that completely convinced Hillary Clinton eats babies? You know where you think like, okay, so there are. How can you cannot make it up what they believe in? And I think Tobias, he was a lonely kid. Basically, he was forty-two when he did the Amok run, but he never really was married. He stayed in the parents' house. Stuff like this, very isolated. 
but also very arrogant. He uh, like his his working colleagues, he, he, they thought he's totally arrogant. And then he started going to the police and and said the CIA is observing him. Whatever he like, he, he did like all kinds of claims at the police, but they didn't took it serious. And but his, his said, father was very racist, well as well yeah, too, right? Still out there and still going through Hanau uh, in a very violent uh, uh, with his German Shepherd way. Uh, so people are scared of him, and they never took him off the street. He even fired. He wants the weapons back from his son, what they seized after his death. So it's it's insane. And uh, but there were various things why I did it because he left a, a huge uh, a pamphlet uh, where he wrote basically his diary. Right? He he created Basic Instinct, for example. Uh, you know, like stuff like this. It's when you read the thirty pages that guy wrote, you think. How is that possible? Like how how he can be like he installed the German soccer national coach, but that he was also chipped from the CAA when he was a right, bastard right. baby. So that, that, that's it, what I was gonna say. I, I think people will look at this character and say, why even why make a movie about him? Why not just say, oh, he's he was just some crazy nutter? Uh you really wanted to tell this story, e- even though I mean he is obviously mentally disturbed, but why is it important that we know the story behind this person? Because he's not alone. Millions think like him, but millions maybe not run amok, but Breivik did it, and the New Zealand shooter did it, and various like there are at least 10, 15 uh uh Kuanon killers already out there. And it's interesting because the, the radicalization from him started 2016 when Trump came into power. And then four years later, he he, he did it. And uh, it's also like this kind of how he felt he knows everything better. Like he was this kind of like, when he, that is why I portrayed him with Stefan Manicus, you know, he comes across like he works on his speech and I have to say it this way, I have to say it that way. And I wanted to portray him like this like, because a lot of these people, they feel they know everything. They know it better historically, uh, socially, whatever. And that are the dangerous people. You know, I had so many people during COVID who turned 360, you know, who, who basically said that, ah, oh, you know, don't do the Pfizer. You get shipped. They know what you're doing. You know, and I always said, like, they know what I'm doing because I have a, hand, a cell phone and the NSA can do whatever they want. So I said, like, it's not you don't need a chip anymore that the if they want to spy on you. So I tried to unarm all that people like, you know, flipping completely out. And uh, every every airplane flying this are a champ trails, they spray things over us. And I said, yeah, but I, that things are since 40 years above me. So, but right now they do it. Why? Why now? Yeah, because it's the big reset. It's like, so you heard from so many people, like so many people around me, people I know for years, neighbors, people in the school, other parents went sideways during Corona. And I think uh, that happened with total misinformation uh, spread a lot of also from from uh, Russian trolls, internet trolls, Chinese spies, and we're not even aware of it. Like what Cambridge Analytica did. So I think they 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 play a, a destabilization game uh, against the West, you know, and uh, and that is very very dangerous. 
So, uh, you know, but it's not that the other side is catching us with the vote culture and the cancel culture and all the, you know, like we are like in a way getting fucked from all sides. You know, if right. you're like an, just an intelligent intellectual, you feel not represented by the, by the whole left wing uh, whatever a diversity vote culture people, and you don't feel represented by the right corner crazy fascists. Yeah. Right. Well, very last thing here. Um, when you made movies like Rampage uh, or Assault on Wall Street, uh, did you have any idea that, or an inkling that we could be seeing more political violence in the future? Because you know, I feel like the reason I wanted to have you on the show was watching Rampage, watching Assault on Wall Street, watching Hanau, uh, we're seeing more and more political violence bubble to the surface. Uh, you know, we just had Nancy Pelosi's husband uh, get hit by a hammer in a, in a, in a basic attack on him, you know? Uh, so did you have an idea that, you know, things could actually end up this way, the way they did in your movies? Uh, because in, in a way, your movie's still kind of prophetic uh, at this point. Yeah, unfortunately, yes. So, you know, I, I think uh, we are maybe not now in the next 10 years, but we're steering to uh, more violence, more wars getting justified now. Also from like left wing politics, they totally enjoy the war in Ukraine uh, in a way. You know, it's like a replacement war against Russia. What now Ukraine is doing for all of us and we just give the money and the weapons and uh it's uh, it's cynical, you know? And I think also look at the Chinese balloons, the spying that they maybe want Taiwan. Why do they want to swallow Taiwan? They live with Taiwan for a thousand years. Who gives a shit, right? They're making all the computer chips in the world. What do you want? Destroy it all. And then we are out of computer chips and the whole world goes down. So it's like th there is no common sense in that power struggle on the planet. It's no, it just doesn't make any sense. And also not for China, because China is only rich now because of us, because we started all putting the money in buying cheap products from China. Then they copied all the material. Then they got like manufacturing in cheaper for, for Europe and, and the USA. And yeah, uh, yeah we're, we're, we're getting to this point where, you know, all these different countries, Russia, China, the US, it's like they all want power. Uh, and, and it's to the point where diplomacy is degrading. We're forgetting how important diplomacy between nations is. And we're choosing war instead. It's horrifying. Yeah, because it's nobody wins in a war and the economy goes down. Uh, savings go away. The inflation goes up. Recession comes. So it's like economically war never made any sense. Only for the weapon manufacturers, right? But it's also like an, an endless, it will be ending, you know, because in the very end, the weapon manufacturers getting also bought. And so what's the point, right? What's the point of getting rich if you know in one year we're all dead? So it, it's like, uh, I, I wish there would be more common sense. And uh, I wish there would be also more common sense for the environment. Uh, and normally you can change things easier early on. You know, if you say now, for example, you know what? You can eat meat only two times a week. I think everybody can live with it. 
you know, you have whatever spaghetti, the other time, you know, and, and uh, whatever. But it's it's like we we drive it this far that then we cannot have any meat anymore. And that is the humans. They're always so fucking idiots that they destroy all the joy, you know. So and that is the same. It's it's like uh, a very bad uh, situation we, we are right now on a lot of aspects. And I think, A, it will get more violent and B, it also get more let's say censored everything gets censored you know when i saw the twitter today about the you people filmed up with eddie murphy and jonah hill i think the film was not funny at all it was a horrible horrible comedy i watched 30 minutes and switched it off it was like total bullshit and super political correct because comedies went completely down the drain a film like postal would never get done again Right. So and then you feel like, OK, so now we don't have funny comedies anymore. Not even Hangover would get done again. So and then you have a shitty comedy. And even there, they started twittering today how bad the Jewish people got portrayed, how bad the black people got portrayed. I mean, that is like when when really like the wrong people have now determined what's what what gets done. And all the big conglomerates, all the streamers, all the, the studios, they basically following a minority of people and producing only now for that minority of people. You know, and I felt for me, Postal, when I was in screenings, I always said, no races, no religion, no nations. That is the, the free spirit, spirit Postal got made, you know, and, and uh, in when Hano came out, the Frankfurter newspaper wrote, uh, is, is film allowed everything? Because I got a lot of negativity from the uh, politics that I made that film so quickly after the massacre. And so they said, like, uh, uh, is it allowed? Is football allowed to do this, right? And how can there be even a question? You know, I called the guy from the newspaper and said, how can you put that in? Because your article says I'm not allowed to do it. And that is ridiculous. Of well, course I'm I allowed. was going to say that the, the German uh, Germany gave you trouble with Rampage as well, where they forced you to change the ending to make it that he goes to Jill at the end. Right. Yeah. And then I came with Rampage, too. And everybody in Germany said how he got out of jail. You know, and I, I and I said, yeah, because he was never in jail. It was the German censorship that said the bad guy should go to jail. And I, when they came with this, it was horrible because so what they do in Germany is that they have after an NC-17, another rating, where then no short store can sell the DVD. So you you basically fucked, right? So then they, they force you to do the ending, the other ending, and then you could be in the stores, like Best Buy in Germany and stuff, right? So the distributor had to do the ending different to, to uh, make the money back. And uh, that was really censorship from the worst, like really very bad censorship. Yeah. I, I want to let you get going because we went a little bit over time. But uh, I had one listener that wanted me to ask you about um, just your work as a producer and whether, uh, you know, there's going to be a reevaluation of your work as someone who produces movies, not just directs, but produces, because I know a lot of people have these weird misconceptions with regards to uh, you and, and German tax shelters. And I get very mad about that because, uh, you know, what you did with, um, you know, tax incentives and tax shelters was a way to level the playing field. You know, uh, you're not Sofia Coppola. You can't just get money from daddy. 
so, you know, I know other filmmakers have used tax shelters and tax incentive laws. We have Section 181 here. Uh, could you just talk briefly about the misconceptions people have about the German tax shelters and some of your uh, video game adaptations? Yeah, that was only from the time 97 to 2005. So you could have basically collect investors. They gave you the money to make a film. In the year you made the film, they wrote the money off from their taxes. But only, of course, 50% was the refund. So let's say you're a dentist. You make 300000 a year. You put the 300000 in the film. You don't pay any taxes. But of course, now your whole annual income is in the film. So year two, after the movie's done, you hope for revenues. I mean, every investor, and that was the, as you said, the total misconception was Uwe Ball is basically burning money on purpose uh, that he's losing all his money because it's the German tax shelter where you have to lose the money so that they are happy. No, it's not. You only have to spend the money in year one so they get the full tax loss, and then you have to recoup the money in the upcoming years to make money. And the other thing is what is also also on Wikipedia, for example, totally wrong, is they always, also Hollywood Reporter, they, they always acting like the box office is the measurement for success. But it's not. The box right, right. Office, it's like when people, I, I've seen people say, uh, oh, House of the Dead only made 13 million against 12 million. Uh, but it's they're not taking into consideration uh, DVD sales and things of that nature. And that is what I mean. It's like a lot of my films were way cheaper as the studio films and uh, did tons of DVD revenues and then later uh, TV revenues. And like House of the Dead made over 28 million on DVD. So, uh, and that was the only reason I kept doing video game based films because if you make money with something, the investors say, you make now more video game films. We're not giving you for Heart of America part two any money or something. So I was like forced to basically say, okay, you know what? Now is the time uh, to get bigger money from the investors because they saw it works. So, and then uh, uh, I made that that other films uh, like Alone in the Dark and stuff like this. So, but nobody who invested in the funds didn't wanted to lose money. Nobody. They all wanted to make money. And the government in 2005 stopped it all completely. And uh, and they said all that stupid German money went to Hollywood. And it's true. Most of the German money went straight to New Line, MGM, uh, uh, Paramount. They got like uh, uh, whole slates paid by German investors. And that was stupid because there was no benefit for Germany in it, in a way, for German filmmakers. And I was the only filmmaker who raised money. The rest was just financial uh, institutions who made deals with the Hollywood uh, studios. Yeah. And, and I think that's important to note just because, like I said, I, and I don't know if you'd agree with this or not, but I think, uh, I mean, there there's tax incentive programs here in America for filmmakers. You know, a lot of Robert Rodriguez's movies in Texas um, have tax incentives behind them. So to me... You know, things like the tax shelters uh, that you were using, I think this is a way for independent filmmakers to actually be able to do what they want and to make films and to have a career. Uh, in that sense, I think, you know, you've provided valuable lessons to independent filmmakers talking about tax shelters and tax incentives. Yeah. And you have to see also Rampage, Stoic, 
Auschwitz would never be paid by a studio. Would ne- it would never happen. They were all very radical. And I think that is also why they're va- valuable. And the good thing was that no investor ever like censored me. They actually liked the films, you know, like the way I, I always rented in the end the movie theaters in Germany and watched it and stuff like this. And uh, they they felt a lot of the films were very good. And uh, I think that I is mean, also- I have to be honest. I, I even found the video game movies fun. I don't know what everyone's so upset with Blood Rain and House of the Dead. I thought they were fun sort of video game style movies. They were meant to, you know, I mean, you, you see Christa, Christina Loken in a sex scene and Jürgen Prosch now shooting zombies. Uh, what's not to like? <laughs> that was what i said also i said like but how could they flip out so much about it It was also ridiculous but the uh no but it was kind of a of a i you watched the offer on paramount plus like the about the shooting of the godfather i love that show because with miles teller right as the producer so and i think that kind of old times where like a mogul, like Blue Dawn or whatever, he flipped out, he whatever, got the meltdown. But but they did Chinatown in the end. They did Rosemary's Baby, right? So, and I think that was a way better time for films as it is now, where you have to fill out, what about applying to Amazon? You have to fill out a, a questionnaire online and then run it through a computer before you even, before somebody else looks at it. So, that is the end of movies. That is what yeah, so I much- was going to say, I mean, do you have any advice uh, for aspiring filmmakers? Because I, I think you should be teaching a, a class on how to get movies produced, how to get funding and whatnot, because you, you seem brilliant when it comes to those things. But it's harder and harder now, even than when, when you were making films in 2003, it, it was a completely different time period. I think it's become even harder to make movies now than it was then in some ways. Yes, because it's like, uh, you have to make a special, like where where you fulfill fulfill all the the different ideas they have, what the audience wants to see. That is also the reason. As soon something works, you have so many copies of it right away, and um, it's it's a. I think it's a very bad time for filmmakers, even if so much get produced, you know, because they get like like uh, uh, compressed. They're getting they're getting like this kind of like, ah, oh, no, that is too hard. And then you need this and that, and whatever. And uh, I think it's, it's, a, it's a big mistake. In the earlier years, I have the feeling like they just, that is the story you want to tell. And not like, but we need a female camera woman, or we need like two Asians, two black, whatever, two people have to be gay, whatever, like this kind of stuff, what is actually now today happening, right? All the big producers developing shit, like TV series, right away with this in in mind to fulfill this, right? And it is dead wrong. You have to have a story to tell and then everything else uh, comes uh, in from alone, you know? So, and it's like, you need the best possible crew, the best possible actors you can get uh, to tell a story and, uh, racism is in a way if you make it racist you know like if if you just tell the story that is has nothing to do with racism i always hire tons of different people with tons of different uh, uh, skin colors and languages and whatever and i don't care you know but it has to fit 
You know, I'm not shooting Darfur and then I need an Asian in it. No, because I shoot Darfur about the genocide in Sudan. So I, of course, have almost only black actors because it's the story, you know, but you cannot shoot like all quiet on the Western front. And, and you know, and then you need like uh, Asians or Africans in it. It was the first world war, Germany against France. So, and I think that is that should be in the center of anything. The same with the crew. Get the crew you trust. Get the true the, the the crew you want to work with. Who gives a shit? You know, I mean, it's it's insane. This kind of like I think a lot of people in today's time they censor themselves right off the bat. They just like they they and that is why a lot of stuff is so bad now. You know, you watch it and you think that why did they gave money for this? So it's like totally absurd. But but then you look deeper into it and you think, yeah, now I know why. Because it fits all all the criteria, you know. And but I still think, like, and I hope that when it comes to like for aspiring filmmakers, the good thing now is that you can shoot two or four K way cheaper as we had to do with thirty five millimeter. I mean, we could not shoot anything. There were like a hundred thousand bucks were just gone for film material and and uh, lab costs. Now you don't have that, so you you have more freedom. To, to do maybe a short movie first or to, to do things where people say, wow, uh, that guy's good. So we should continue working with him. You know, I think it's easier now for younger filmmakers to put something out there what other people can see and say, great. You know, and even on YouTube, there are superstars on YouTube now. They don't need a studio. They make enough money just with their channel on, on YouTube. That is the good thing. So, and uh, but I hope, and I hoped that Netflix, for example, it is staying more as they were in the beginning, more maverick, more genre, you know, more R-rated. That is what I hope that Netflix. But I see the tendency that now Netflix want to be like Marvel meets like uh, the country music channel or something. I I don't know. You know, I have the feeling that they're going in the wrong direction. And uh, that is, um, it's too bad because a lot of the streams are also too mainstream, I think. What, what, what um, last question I promised this time. Uh, what, what's your, what, what would your advice be for filmmakers when it comes to working with actors? And the reason I ask you that question is because uh, you've worked with a number of actors on multiple occasions. So, you know, Brendan Fletcher is in a number of your movies, uh, Clint Howard, Michael Pire. Um, what, what leads to a good relationship with actors and how do you, uh, approach working with actors, what would your advice be on that? Yeah, I think I would be just be yourself, right? So, uh, and I think like, uh, and people, like some actors, they, they, uh, they criticize me for, for, for behavior for me on set, like yelling, like cut, total crap, whatever. Like I'd say something like this, right? And some people, they don't, they cannot handle it. But when when like a Clint Howard or Michael Perry or people I work with, a lot of people, uh, they like, like Ron Perman told me, uh, he said, I like that you don't try to act in front of us. They said like, uh, uh, Jason Stessen, the same, they said like, you are who you are. Like, so we can, we know how to handle you. You will be just blunt telling us good or not good. And, and, uh, they, I don't know how other directors work, but I, I, I see myself when I sit there and they play something. I see myself at that point 
only one function. Do I believe it or not? Is it like, like you know, believe I'm what they're doing here right now or not? And if I don't believe it, I don't like it. So uh, that is my only criteria. And uh, I think in the in my dramas and so I it worked out. And in some of the genre films, it didn't work out. And uh, where where you have also this kind of um, then you compromise. You know where where the producer wins in my chest. You know where you say, look, I had here massive CGI, fifty stunt people doing the shot. I did it twice. I'm not hundred percent happy. We have to move on. So uh, that is also when you know the, the the it's your money what you raised, and it's not that the studio comes to save you or something. It was for me also clear. I had to do it, and I had to finish it. And I cannot go a million over budget because that the, it was not there. Right. So and, you, you you sort of have to be high octane when it comes to shooting these films. You know, it's about, you know, ultimately you have to get the film done, you know. Uh, so yes. there may be one or two mistakes, but you have to get the film made. Yes. And I had like, especially on House of the Dead, where we had the Matrix rig and stuff like this, that things didn't work. You know, we had the stunt guy falling in the in the rig with 180 stills cameras and it just collapsed to- totally. And I was like, that was it. Like, uh, how long you need to rebuild the rig? And then like five hours. And it was like three o'clock in the night already. And then I know the sun will come up. And uh, there there were moments where you have to compromise, where you also uh, like get a a, a crunch, you know, where you feel like, fuck, you know, what should I do now Uh, that gets out of hand? And that is, of course, with the bigger films, you had situations like this. And uh, we had a truck, for example, in the name of the king, a truck got off the road and f- and flipped. But it was the only road out of the, the little town where the, everybody was living. So now you have 450 people who cannot go home and come back after 11 hours because they need the break time. So, you know, and then you, 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 you basically wrapped, you didn't shoot and it's five o'clock in the afternoon. Everybody wants to go back. Nobody can go back. And then you have midnight or 1am and you know, now I cannot bring them back till lunchtime next year, the next, next day. And then we're talking here about 250,000 bucks, you know, because you had like four, four or 500 people in a big film like this. That, that were moments where you are like, Fuck! What what can I do to make that money back? Like what scene I can do way faster so that I have a six hour day at one point to go back in the rhythm, basically, right? And I think a lot of people who are never going deep into uh, film producing, like in the thinking, like a producer, uh, they they love Christopher Nolan or whatever, right? So, but, but I mean, yeah, but the reality is if I have unlimited budgets and never have to put up a dime from my money in anything, yeah, then we shoot till we're done. You know, and if we go $40 million over budget later, too bad, but not for me. It was the studio had to pay the bills and they were not even there to stop the whole thing, you know? And uh, I mean, there were things... Last mini story, when I showed Alone in the Dark, the next studio was doing X-Men and was Brian Singer and Hal Berry. And, and nobody came. 
There were days and days where Brian Singer was just whatever, partying. Hal Berry was completely flipping out. She was like screaming and yelling. And nobody shot. And nobody cared. But everybody was there. Like the technical crew was standing around. They were all on payroll, you know. And uh, that would never happen in my world. It's just completely, I would throw Brian Singer out, you know, like, was it like, you're not coming, you're out, boom, gone. But he like was hailed like the great Brian Singer, the great Brian Singer. And in reality, he was just totally out of it, basically, at that time. Now, yeah. Good. Well, hey, Uwe Bo, I want to thank you so much for giving me this time to speak with you. And uh, I want to thank you for all your films. I, I think they deserve a lot more reevaluation. And also, I got to thank you uh, for House of the Dead. You cast uh, Ellie Cornell. I thought that was a great nod to Halloween yeah. 4. I, I enjoy yeah. uh, most of your films, to be honest. So I want to thank you again. I hope people reevaluate your film work. Uh, how would you recommend uh, my listeners keep up with your work? And is there any work that you have coming up in the future that you'd like them to, to know about? I know you have an Elliot Ness biopic. Anything else coming up? Yeah, I'm shooting a film in New York that uh, um, uh, first shift, it uh, follows uh, one shift of two police officers, uh, a 12-hour shift in Brooklyn. Um, and it has a lot of, it has basically everything in that 12 hours from uh, sad stories, uh, funny stories, and two very, very violent stories basically happening parallel. And they are involved as uh, uh, police officers. So I'm, I'm shooting that now in March in, in Brooklyn. So it will be, uh, that will be the first international film after Rampage 3. And uh, so um, we have uh, Kristen Renton for uh, uh, the, she was like in Sons of Anarchy and Two and a Half Men and whatever. She plays a female cop and Gino Anthony Pizzi, he plays the male cop. He was, for example, uh, in Shades of Blue with Jennifer Lopez. He was the male lead to a, to a TV series. So good actors. And we're getting more, like a lot of cameos coming in. And uh, I have a lot of the Irishman mobsters uh, playing in my <laughs> the same actors. Good that they all live in Brooklyn. So, this, uh, this is separate from the Elliot Ness biopic, right? Yeah. The Elliot Ness one, I, I'm actually almost happy if uh, Kevin Costner would go back to movies because I want him because it's like, that is about Elliot Ness' last case, the butcher of Kingsbury Run, a serial murder case he did. And uh, it would be basically like Untouchables 2. So Kevin Costner, if you hear this here, <laughs> you should do it because uh, with him, we would get the financing. It's a more expensive film because it plays in the 50s. So, uh, you know, it's nothing what I can finance on my own. So that has to be uh, a studio or a streamer uh, paying for it, but I think it would be great. And it's a true story. And yeah, the uh, Cleveland Torso murders, right? Yes. It never got made. There was even, I think, Matt Damon attached to, the, to it one time. And then uh, I think maybe it didn't get made because it has a sad ending in a way. But that is maybe the reason to do it. I, I, I like gangster films. Untouchables was a great film. Uh, and uh, I would love to do something like this. I, I was also going to say, uh, yeah, you, you, of course, have a segment in the upcoming horror anthology, The Profane Exhibit, about uh, your segment, I think, is about Joseph Fritzl. And you have a documentary, uh, The Decline, about the opioid crisis. Is that already available? 
Yeah, that is, uh, I think, also on stream. I produced that. I didn't direct it, right. but I produced it because I saw in Vancouver really the decline. And uh, with the fentanyl death, uh, it was completely out of hand. Uh, yeah. And I, I'm shooting since two and a half years a documentary in Germany about the Banditos motorcycle game. So uh, it's like an endless uh, doku. And uh, I hope I can finish it one time. Right now, all my uh, interview partners are in jail. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's like they, they and the Hells Angels are the biggest groups in the world, basically, for this. And uh, it was uh, also two and a half years of uh, mayhem, I have to say. I would not do it again, to say it right off the bat. But now when I start something, I want to finish it too. And uh, so I, I need to wait till they're getting out of jail. Thank you again, Uwe Boll, for coming on Parallax Views. Thank you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Uwe Boll. And I should add, if you enjoyed hearing Uwe's thoughts, you can always check out his podcast at uvebullrawusa.com. And of course, be sure to check out his latest movie, Hanau, Winter in Germany, now available on a number of different streaming platforms. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.